Life is a blank canvas and you paint your own story. I'm Lee Rogers and welcome to The Blank Canvas. I'm going to be chatting with the trailblazers, artists, thought leaders, athletes, the entrepreneurs and creators, incredible individuals who inspire us to live large. This week's guest is writer, showrunner and executive producer Stacey Rookeiser. Stacey's behind the current Netflix hit, Sex Life, which in its first 10 days was in the Netflix top 10 list in 92 countries. That's a hell of a lot of eyeballs, isn't it? A month after the release, and it's still buzzing on social media with the likes of Kim Kardashian tweeting about it just before this chat with Stacey. 2020 and 21 have presented plenty of challenges to actually physically make TV drama with social distancing guidelines and other hurdles. But the upside for the like of Netflix has been a huge captive audience locked in at home and binging on escapist entertainment or the latest TV phenomenon. Stacey is the creator, showrunner and EP of Sex Life, which was inspired by B.B. Easton's book, 44 Chapters About Men. The series uncovers the story of a suburban mother of two who takes a fantasy-charged trip down memory lane that sets her very married present on a collision course with her wild child past. Okay, there you go. Prior to this series, Stacey served as the showrunner and EP on the acclaimed drama series Unreal, which scored a 2016 Primetime Emmy Award nomination for Outstanding Writing in a Drama Series and won an AFI Award for TV Program of the Year. Stacey's previous writing credits include the Golden Globe winning series Without a Trace, Crash, One Tree Hill, October Road, Standoff, Greek and The Lying Game. Stacey's an old mate of mine from when I lived in LA about 20 years ago. I watched her transition from frustrated actor to aspiring writer. I vividly remember reading her first spec scripts and thinking, yep, she's the real deal. Please welcome to the blank canvas, Stacey Rookeiser. Good morning, Stacey. Good morning. Hey, um, congratulations on Sex Life, the hit series. <laughs> Thank you so much. I, I like having that moniker after the title of the series. That's nice. Well, it's pretty cool because as I was preparing for this, it took me back to the first time we met. And, you know, I think about 20 odd years ago, you were an actress, a pretty frustrated one, I might add. <laughs> and you were starting to write spec scripts thinking, oh, well, you know, maybe I can make a go with this writing caper. And here we are 20 odd years later and you've just created and executively produced the number one hit show on Netflix of the last couple of weeks. Thank you. Yeah, it only took 20 years. So <laughs> that's so funny. I mean, that's amazing that you remember that, you know, I mean, it was a pretty transformative change, I have to say, you know, when I wrote my first script, it was an adaptation of a book that was um, intended to be a feature film. And nothing's ever happened with that script. But the experience that I had writing it was incredibly transformative personally, because I just felt like I was sort of snapping back into who I really was as a person. And I was like, Oh, yes, I'm a writer, I'm not an actress. And, and then I had to figure out what does that even mean? How do you be a writer? You know, because <laughs> I've been doing this other thing for so long. And so 
and then you know it came along and it became TV and anyway and here we are 20 short years later <laughs> here we are no it's testament to you because I remember the script I think it was something to do with the Isle of Wight wasn't it the, the feature script because I read it at the time oh that's amazing okay it's the Isle of Man close I- Isle it's of very Man, close that's right yeah but um yeah it's an adaptation of a novel that my great-great-grandfather wrote and his name was Hall Kane, and he was a pretty famous British novelist at the turn of the last century. And he was friends with Bram Stoker and George Bernard Shaw, and he was the popularist of the group. I mean, he wrote these, this is a romance. You know, I, I always pitch it sort of the one-liner is that it was a, a Celtic Legends of the Fall. You remember that, Brad Pitt maybe. Yeah. And a great part for a woman, which is how it started, because I did think I was going to be writing something for myself as an actress, but then it sort of went from there, yeah. <laughs> I remember you going, oh, my God, this is really challenging. And I remember you sort of writing several spec scripts and just hoping to get a bite and get your foot in the door. And, I mean, I know your dad is a legendary kind of financial analyst and broadcaster, but in kind of a totally different space. I remember it kind of like, well, yeah, it doesn't make any difference. Maybe I can get in there to talk to some people because of the connections with dad. But, you know, at the end of the day, it comes down to writing a great script. Yeah, absolutely. It is funny because people, you know, he had a show on PBS for 32 years. And so people thought, oh, TV is TV. So that must be easy. But but it's a completely different field. And after college, I was an actress for seven years or trying to be an actress, however you want to put it, um, for seven years. And then I wrote my first script. And then that's when I made the decision to be a writer. And then it was four years after that, when I had like that, that feature script that you read got options, which at the time I was like, it's been optioned. I mean, now I know that really sort of means nothing, <laughs> that nothing's happened, but it was enough encouragement really for me to keep going. And, and little things happened along the way. I, I developed a TV show for Aaron Spelling's company back when that was around. Um, and again, that didn't sell to a network, but they had been interested and that was encouraging enough for me to keep going. And that's when I discovered that I actually love writing for television even more than I like writing for film because you get to tell these ongoing stories and live with these characters you know, for so long. But anyway, it was four years before I got my first job as a staff writer on a TV show, which was on Without a Trace, which was on CBS. That was my first paid gig, uh, except for the story I sold to True Romance magazine. Um, Way before that, they paid me, I think, like $50 for the story. But again, those little sort of encouragements along the way made a difference. But yeah, so so then I I, um, I was a staff writer on, on Without a Trace in 2002. And then I have been on staff ever since then. Like, you know, I just every year was on a different show and working my way up the ranks. And, you know, television, it, it was a little different then than it is now. I mean, now there's such an explosion of programming and so many different streamers and, and outlets that younger writers, and I just mean in terms of their experience, not even in terms of their age, but younger writers are creating shows all the time. Back when I was coming up, the thought process was that you should go on staff of somebody else's show and learn the structure and and the business and how to produce and all of that and work your way up the ladder and then get to the point where you would be, you know, creating your own show. So it's 19 years actually that I've been, I guess, on, on, um, on staff of TV shows, but they were worth it because now I really do know what I'm doing (laughs) by the time it, it comes around to being, 
you know, your own show. So I worked on other people's shows and then I was a strong number two is what they call it for a lot of people's shows. And then I was running other people's shows. And then this is the first time that it's my own creation that I'm running as well. Wow. Thanks for the succinct overview. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So it has changed a lot, hasn't it? Because it was predominantly men in the writer's room when you began. And it's probably, you know, on many shows, particularly your show, it's predominantly women. Yeah, well, it's definitely changing, you know. I mean, this is an exciting time right now. There is definitely an explosion of of diversity really and not just in terms of gender but but racial diversity as well in terms of new creators coming up but several times I was the only female writer on the staff and once it was with 11 guys and me um I mean I think the latest statistics are a couple years old but it's still something like 80 percent of showrunners are male it's something quite high and not awesome, um, but it is changing. And, and, and it's what's exciting about this explosion of, of outlets is that there are opportunities to create from a really personal point of view. I mean, I, for you know over 10 years, I've been trying to develop shows that are very female forward. And I've been told more than once it's too female. And, you know, it's just shocking to me considering that aside from the fact that we're half the world's population, um, but women watch a lot of TV. You know, women watch even more TV than men. But, you know, now the show is so sort of unapologetically female and, you know, and about female desire, which is such taboo subject and historically has been sort of the most frightening thing for a lot of people. (laughs) So it's kind of like just really knocking loudly on the door, basically. It's definitely a guilty pleasure kind of show. I've watched a couple of apps when it first came out, and then I've just watched a few more in the last few days. And wow, holy smokes, you've gone there. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, absolutely. I mean, I set out from the very beginning to make a show that was fierce and gutsy and unapologetic and to take really big swings. And that has been the guiding principle the whole way through. And and that's in the story choices and in every choice, really. But it was also the decision to write this show in the first place. You know, I mean, it comes from a very personal place for me. You know, this is a story, this is a predicament that many women find themselves in, but no one ever talks about, you know, I mean, particularly as a wife and a mother, you know, you you sort of find yourself exhausted up in the middle of the night with your baby and it's wonderful. And there's just so much love and it's everything that you ever wanted, but you can't help but wonder like, who am I now? And where did this other girl go? This woman that I used to be. And, and it's a real sort of identity shift that happens, you know, and this other self really that women are expected to give up and, you know, put in a box and leave it on the on the shelf kind of. And it's just been so gratifying for me. I get a lot of messages from women. I mean, certainly like emails and texts from people I know, but I get a lot of DMs from strangers telling me how much the show has meant to them on such a personal level and how seen they feel. And it's really just given them a framework to talk about 
identity and purpose and fulfillment. It's like women are, we're not supposed to talk about this. And, and women are afraid to talk about this because they're afraid that it's going to make them seem ungrateful. And that is the whole point of our show is that it's possible to be incredibly grateful for all of your, you know, many blessings, but still want more. And, um, and it's okay to try to figure out how to get that. And then of course it's complicated because she's already married to a different guy when she's feeling frustrated. And so, so yeah. <laughs> Thank you. It is complicated. No doubt about it. There's some classic scenes in there, particularly the, the milk expressing scenes made me laugh <laughs> and reminded me of some, um, some classic moments with my wife on the road, on tour, expressing milk, you know, in, in bathrooms, in hotels and planes and here and there. And, and then the next minute she's frocked up and out there looking glamorous on stage. And, you know, I'm backstage handling all of the, uh, <laughs> all of the milk and the implements. That is so awesome. Well, I mean, that is another thing, you know, people don't talk about so much. And it was so important to me to get the breastfeeding details right, you know, and it, it's everything from the breasts themselves and the position of the babies and all of that, but just being very sort of like out loud and proud about you need to pump. If you don't pump, it's going to come out. And then it comes out at inopportune moments and how it comes out and what the breast milk should look like. And even the sounds of the baby, um, when she's breastfeeding, you know, we, we were in the sound mix and I said, this doesn't sound right. That does not sound like actual suckling to me. And they tried to adjust it a little bit. And I said, here, here's this video of me, um, breastfeeding my second baby, because he was particularly loud, I have to say, as in, when he was nursing, but it worked. And so they took the audio from that video and that's the audio that we use in the show. Um, because I was like, that sounds real, you know? And again, it's just shocking to a lot of people because they're just like, oh my gosh, this is like sex that women like. And now it's the breastfeeding that really happens and women talking honestly about, you know, what's going on for them. Like it's, it's unapologetic, as I said, in your face. <laughs> So tell me how it came to be at Netflix. Had they told you they were looking for a certain type of show and gave you an opportunity to come in and pitch or did you just originate it? Um, no. So they had already bought the book. So Miles Dale is the executive producer and he works a lot with Guillermo del Toro. And so he had just won the Oscar for Shape of Water and like literally like two days before I think he went into Netflix. And so he went into Netflix with his Oscar in one hand and with this book in the other and they bought it. And so then they were looking for a writer. And so I read the book and I came in and I met and I told them about the parts of the book. And, and I remember there was this one paragraph in particular that I really, really identified with. And I really understood in terms of that conflict that I was mentioning before of just loving your children and loving your husband and still wondering who am I now and what happened to that person and longing for those wild, free, glamorous nights. And so then I, I made it really personal for me. You know, I changed the setting. It's, it's set in the Connecticut suburb where I grew up. 
And it's set in New York City in the past where I went to go live after college with my own best girlfriends and our own crazy nights on the town with impossibly sexy men that we all had affairs with. <laughs> and um, and I, I made created some new characters and made other changes to the book as you do when you have a series that's just inspired really by a book, but it became incredibly personal to me. And so the way it works at Netflix is that they do a script to series model. So you write one script for them and if they like it, then they pick it up to series. And so that's what they did. So it was sort of like an open writing assignment at the beginning. You know, they had Miles and they had the book and they were looking for a writer. And then I just came in and sort of pitched them what I would do with the show. And and they seemed to like that. Okay, gotcha. Thank you. So clearly the Brad character was based on me. <laughs> Only physically. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Not the jerky parts, but the stunning physical specimen parts. Yeah. Yeah. Was he Aussie in the book or did that happen? He through was the not. Process? Yeah. So he's not actually a character from the book. He is my own creation. So I didn't use the ex-boyfriends that are in the book. I sort of created this one out of whole cloth. And so I had worked with Adam Demos on Unreal, which was the last series that I was running. And I thought about him when I was writing the script. I thought about him for Brad and I thought he might be right. But it was also um, much deeper material than what he'd had to do on Unreal. It was much more emotional. And I was like, I think Adam would be really right for this, but... I'm not sure if he'd be up for, you know, this deeper thing. And so then he sent in his audition, which was fantastic. And it was sort of like saying, oh, yeah, I'll show you how ready I am (laughs) to do this deeper material. But so then, yeah, we did change the character to be Australian for him. And and because I just think he has such, I mean, aside from like the vulnerability and that emotion that he really shows, which is so important because otherwise, I mean, he's gorgeous and he's charming and all of those things and so funny, but he's just also a jerk in the past. You know what I mean? He's got his emotional baggage that's getting in his way. And so you really did need to see that vulnerability to understand why, first of all, Billy keeps getting sucked back into his orbit, even after he keeps messing up, you know, time and time again. And also just to be rooting for him to deal with his emotional baggage and get over it and, and be somebody who is maybe worthy of her. And then for him to present himself in the present and and for you to believe, has he changed? Like, I I think he maybe has changed. Maybe she could have it all with him or whatever. So, but that was exciting. That meant that his mom needed to be Australian when we cast her and, you know, figure out some backstory. Why is this Aussie guy in New York? Um, so we had to do a little rewriting for that. It's a great story. And I mean, he was a, a tradie or something, wasn't he? From a Wollongong, which I think's you know, yeah. kind of like a working class town in New South Wales. What does treaty mean? I don't even know. Oh. What does that mean? Oh, tradesman. Oh, yeah. Like he did construction. That's what I know. He was a construction worker. Yeah, yeah. 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 No, it's incredible. And I was actually just talking to the casting director from Unreal. Her name is Barbara Fiorentino. And she is the one who introduced him to us. And I said to her, I said, you're really responsible for all of this success that Adam is having now because I wouldn't have known about him if it wasn't for her. And and I don't even know how she found him from Wollongong. It's right. Yes. <laughs> Which is, I guess, not Sydney. 
but near Sydney, <laughs> but <right>. not Sydney. <laughs> yeah, about an hour and a half south of Sydney. Okay, yeah. yeah. Wow. Hey, um, talking of Unreal, it was Unreal. <laughs> Love that show. Uh, I mean, it was sort of a zeitgeist moment in a way, wasn't it? Because it was capturing that sort of time and that moment, I guess, a parody of reality TV of, of that type of show. And um, it was brilliant. It was dark. It was funny. It was dramatic. It just sort of hit all the right notes. Oh, great. That must have been a buzz working on that show. Yeah, it was incredible. And, you know, I had no idea that it would be such a critical success when we started working on it. You know, I mean, I so it was created by Marty Noxon and Sarah Shapiro. And I had worked with Marty once before on another show. And um, that's how I came to this. And then Sarah Shapiro sort of famously, she had herself been a producer on The Bachelor. And then she wrote and directed a short film. That is what the series is based on. And so when I came to it, I mean, I had loved the script. And what's great about it is that it's really was from the get-go was a character study. Um, And it was about a woman who you know, has a nervous breakdown, basically a producer on The Bachelor who has a nervous breakdown and then sort of has to come back to work on the show. And that was the sort of emotional thread that was taking you through this, not directly, but indirectly sort of expose of reality television. And so, you know, the things that happen in real life, you know, when they're producing reality television are shocking. And, um, and then that just sort of gave us license to really kind of go for it. And I remember from a storytelling perspective, what was exciting was sort of going for those big twists and turns. And and that's informed my storytelling from that point forward. You know, I mean, that is why it's a big reason why sex life takes such big swings from a narrative perspective, because I just sort of fell in love with that kind of storytelling. And I also think it's exciting TV for people to, to get to take that roller coaster ride. But, but the example I give from Unreal is that, you know, we had a contestant jump off the roof of the house and kill herself in the middle of the first season. Like normally that kind of a big story point you would do like as a season ender or something like that. And instead we did that and sort of wrote ourselves into a corner as it were. And it was challenging the next episode after that, because like, what do you do? Are you picking up in real time or how are you dealing with the ramifications of that? It's not as fun certainly as what had come in the few episodes before that, but it was a big swing, you know, and, and I remember Marty really um, fighting for that and, and other things too, like we would broke the sort of format of the show in the third episode. And we went home with Rachel to see, and we met her mother. Um, and so that was sort of interesting from a narrative perspective too, that you wouldn't just have, well, every episode is going to be the same, you know? And so I, I learned a lot from that and it's been inspirational really all the way forward. Yeah. Um, Kate, my wife has been on a few reality TV shows. Okay, hopefully um, it's not as bad as that. <laughs> <laughs> no, she had a great experience on Dancing with the Stars and won that. Yeah. And that was on the, the more feel-good, you know, type of reality <laughs> TV show. She was a, a judge on the first season of X Factor. Oh, right. And that was a different kind of experience. So having lived through some of those, it just yeah, it really resonated with us. Kate okay. and I watched it and we were just like, oh, my <laughs> God. And, you know, a lot of it really rang true. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, even, and I don't know, you know, what happened behind the scenes, but even like on X Factor where it's based on talent, you know, is at least something. Like these reality dating competition shows are 
ones that I have such a problem with because I sort of feel like, what is it telling young girls out there? I mean, first of all, it's telling them that in order to be acceptable, you need to look like a model in a bikini and, you know, hang out in the hot tub. And, and, you know, in one version, it's like, it's okay to be with 20 women, you know, all vying for one guy, you know, and then Prince Charming will swoop in and pick you up in a helicopter and take you to dinner. And that's what love looks like. And that's to say nothing of like the sort of nefarious goings on behind the scenes and the lies that are told in order to create drama and the female competition that I think that it breeds. It's just all the things that I'm, you know, really not that into. (laughs) Um, So it was exciting to sort of you know, be giving voice to that. I mean, look, what do we know? Like The Bachelor is a huge hit. Women love that. I mean, and men love that show. And and it's always interesting to me to see the demographics of their viewers because it is educated, successful women also who love that show. So there's obviously something that princess fantasy is so ingrained in us. You know, there is something that is obviously tapping into something, but it was exciting to sort of be on the other side of it and go you know, maybe not so good, guys. (laughs) Maybe not so good. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because we're in an era of equality and Me Too and all these other things, yet at the same time, one of the biggest shows is, you know, The Bachelor and yeah, as you've described, it's an amazing dynamic there, isn't it? I know, I know. Well... You know, there's space for all kinds of stories now. (laughs) (laughs) What a time to be alive. There you go. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) I read your article, a piece you wrote for The Hollywood Reporter. Yeah. Wow. That, that, That was pretty powerful. How did that come about? Well, it's interesting. So, you know, I wrote that it was really towards the beginning of the of the Me Too movement. And you know, in retrospect, sort of the kinds of things that I was writing about seem so minor <laughs> compared to a lot of things that that came out, you know, in terms of, I mean, there was illegal stuff and assault and, and not on that show necessarily, but just in general, you know, it's like we're talking about a real range of behavior that is being exposed for the first time. And, and like I said, that ranges from actual assault to these sort of uncomfortable situations, sexist situations, you know, these prejudices. And it was important to me to speak out. I mean, there's another writer from One Tree Hill who really spoke out first. And I I also wanted to support her. And then it came that all the actresses from One Tree Hill were speaking out too. And it sort of grew from there. But you know, what was important to me, and, and it's interesting because in some ways I feel like such a grandma now because things are changing so much in the industry that I wonder how much this is still an issue, you know, and, and awareness has really grown so much. I mean, I pray that it's not an issue. I mean, I've been running my own shows for a while now. So I think it's different. You have a female showrunner, you have someone who's really aware of these dynamics and someone who didn't always have a great experience um, being on staff. And so over those 19 years, I was sort of collecting ideas of saying, you know, when I am running my own show, this is how I want to do it. And I care very deeply about creating a good working environment for the people who work for me. And I mean, look, that starts with everyone feeling safe, but then it it goes much further than that um, in terms of hoping that everyone feels heard and that they're contributing. But 
you know, it was, as I said, it was a real frat boy writer's room on that show. And it's such an interesting paradox because that is a show that means so much to so many young women and that meant so much to so many young women and teenage girls at the time. And it was challenging. And I can remember even just from a story perspective, like trying to get certain story points through and really being laughed out of the room. And now I get to, you know, tell those stories um, that would have gotten me laughed out of the room before. So uh, look, it was frightening also to speak up, I'll be honest, you know, and, and, it, and it wasn't, you know, uh, an 100% positive experience, I'll put it that way. But uh, I really do admire the writer who spoke up in the first place. And I, I really did want to support her. And um you know, I was encouraged by others that it would make a difference to speak up. And so hopefully it did. Yeah, look, it's a, it's complex, isn't it? Because obviously there's many great men you've worked with and many of them have given you great opportunities and all the rest of it. So, you know, the majority of the men out there are great. Yeah, totally. And look, it's also complicated because Mark Schwann, who was the creator and showrunner on One Tree Hill, also gave me a lot of great opportunities. And I also learned a lot from him as a writer. And there are things that I learned about not only writing um, an emotion and putting music to scenes, you know, that I use to this day. So it, it is complicated. It is definitely complicated. But yes, I've worked for many showrunners who are amazing. I mean, Glenn Mazzara, who's one of my biggest mentors in the industry, He's a dude. Um, Chuck Pratt, who I also worked for and learned a lot from, dude. You know, I mean, it's like when there aren't a lot of female showrunners, you're forced to have mentors who are men. But again, like the world is changing. And, and I'll tell you, it was interesting when we were casting the third season of Unreal, which was the season when it was The Bachelorette, or if you will. So the bunch of guys as contestants. And that was just before the Me Too era. And, you know, we're casting guys and having to go like, are they cute enough? And things like that, which is like the tables were really turned. And you see how it's like a little bit of a slippery slope and some of those conversations that you hear that would happen in casting rooms about women. Like I got a little taste of it. I was like, oh, I can see how this happens. And then suddenly you're in an arena that is really not okay of <laughs> the conversations you're having. <laughs> to say nothing of like the casting couch and whatever else, those other things that happened in this industry. We did not have any of that. We did not have any of that on that trail <laughs> or on Sex Life. <laughs> Thanks for sharing. <laughs> hey, um, is there going to be a season two of Sex Life? God willing. Yeah. You know, I mean, Netflix, they have their algorithms and they care very much about their numbers in the first 28 days and not only how many people watch the show in the first 28 days, but how many people complete the show, how many people watch the whole thing in the first 28 days. And then I don't know what happens after 28 days. I think you don't count maybe anymore if it's taking you more than 28 days. But so that's what we're waiting for. Our 28 days just went up. And so we're just waiting to hear how do we do, you know? Um, it feels pretty good to me, but fingers crossed, you know? Wow. I mean, I think it's how many territories was it number one in for, I don't know, a couple of weeks or something? Do you yeah, yeah. I mean, that was incredible. It was like 86 countries or something like that. And that it was number one. And, and they told us like it was in the top 10 for over a week 
in 78 countries. That was in just the first 10 days. So it's pretty incredible. I mean, that is the Netflix executives were telling me, you don't really understand what it's like to have a show launch on Netflix and what it's like to have so many people all over the world, watch it all at once. And I was like, yeah, 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 okay, okay. And then the launch came and I was like, oh my gosh. It's just the way you think about the people who are watching it is just a much bigger order of magnitude than anything I've ever experienced. And it, and it's exciting and it's exciting to see people. And I get some of those DMs are from the Philippines and Malaysia and Europe and you know, it's, it's pretty unbelievable. Um, and, and it's really heartening just to see that kind of shared reality, you know, particularly for women, like all over the world and that they're saying, thank you so much for this. And I see myself and it's like, who would have thought that? Yeah. That's fantastic. So it must've been incredibly exciting to, you know, watch this juggernaut roll out across the world, but the pressure must've been pretty intense. Um, that's interesting. I never thought about it like that. I mean, it really, it was such a dream come true. I have to say, I mean, like I said, I've been a TV writer for 19 years. This is the first time that it's a show that I created myself that I'm running. And it's a show, as I mentioned, that is comes from a deeply personal place um, in terms of the themes of motherhood and identity that we're looking at. I deeply understand the longing and the and the themes of female desire that we're looking at. And it is, you know, like I said, set in the suburb where I grew up. It's set in a sparkly fever dream version of the Manhattan where I spent my own, you know, fun single girl in the city days. And every step along the way, it's cast with people that I love and Adam, who I knew before. The costumes are like, could be straight out of my dream closet. You know, the music I love and, and we don't even get to talk about that so much, but the songs, um, we had an incredible music supervisor, um, Howard Parr, who did an incredible job with the songs and the score was done by Mark Isham and um, Isabella Summers, who is the machine from Florence and the Machine. And so everything was just wrapped up in this incredibly elegant, beautiful way. But it was a struggle to get it done. We had a worldwide pandemic in the middle of it, you know, and we shut down for five months and then we had to figure out a way to, to get back. And we had incredible, um, you know, incredible production team on the ground in Toronto where we're shooting. But so it was always just sort of looking at the next thing. And then, you know, my incredible producing editor, Scott Wallace, who I'd also worked with on Unreal, and we had to do everything remotely. You know, Scott and I were never in a room together through the whole process. And we had Rebecca and Janet, two other incredible editors, never saw them in person until the premiere party that I had in my house. And we were doing, you know, sound mixes remotely from Toronto. So I was just so focused on all of that, you know, and I remember Mike Vogel, who plays Cooper, said to me, it's so great. We just need to get eyeballs on it. And I was like, I know, I know. And so that's what we were just focused on. And then, you know, Netflix came out with this incredible marketing campaign and obviously had so much support for the show, which was just so exciting. And because again, I've been on many, many shows where you don't get that and you feel like the redheaded stepchild at the, at the network because you're the, you're the one who's not getting the attention. So 
it's just been a dream come true, you know, in that way. And then just to have people talking about it, it, it's just so exciting. And, you know, now it's like a TikTok meme where people are watching um, the shower scene and like blind recording their reactions to that. And, and Kim Kardashian is tweeting about the show, how it's her new favorite show. And it's exciting. I mean, we always you knew that it would be noisy, you know, and, and that it was going to be provocative and, and deliberately so. But I don't think we sort of understood what that means on the sort of Netflix worldwide scale, you know, but it's it's just been a dream come true. I mean, you know, as my agent said to me the other day, he said, this is what you came to Hollywood to do, which is right. So mic drop. I can just mic drop. I can just like go to the woods and be <laughs> done or maybe do a second season, hopefully. <laughs> okay. Hey, um, do you keep a diary? I mean, it's like, <laughs> I mean, I've started diaries a few times in my life and then I'd get into it and I'd go, I'm not writing all this down. Imagine if this person got that or somebody got a hold of that and whatever. And I'm like, this was even before the internet. I've been too scared to put all that stuff down somewhere. Okay. Certainly after watching watching your show. <laughs> That's so funny. Well, you are not married to someone who would snoop and read your journal if she did find it. I believe that Kate would not do that. And that is a point that, you know, people need to hold Cooper, her husband, accountable for in the show. He reads her journal. And where I come from, that is a big betrayal. And I have always kept a journal. Um, It has been at times in flowered notebooks, and it has been at times a Word doc on my computer. And and I frankly wish that I kept more of it. I, I did find when I became a writer that I started putting it into my work. And instead of sort of obsessing about it in my diary, I would find a way to write about it in my work. Now, of course, I wish I had written everything in the journal so that I would have more details and more things for my work. But it's it's been lovely to um, to write from such a personal place, you know. But but I can remember um, sort of one of the last times I was I was writing in my journal, which was on my computer. I have a friend from college who married an Italian man, and I went to see them in Italy. And then, and we were skiing in Cortina and, you know, you fly into Venice and Venice is one of my favorite cities in the world, but I was alone. I wasn't married at that time and I didn't have a boyfriend. And my mother was really encouraging me to go and spend a few nights in Venice by myself. And I said, but I'll be by myself. And she said, but you're Stacy Brukheiser, which is how my mother always died to me, which was the best encouragement you can give somebody. And so I did. And I went and I sat at Harry's bar by myself and had a Bellini and, and then wrote in my journal and um, wrote about what it was like and probably about the handsome man I'd like to manifest to go back to Harry's bar with someday. But I think that, you know, um, I like to validate people that their thoughts mean something and that they're worthy of being written down. And it's a great way to sort of get at what you do really want, you know, if you don't let yourself go in circles with what's wrong, which I've had those journals too, (laughs) but it's also a good way to say, this is what I dream of. And this is what I want to make happen. I like that. Do you believe in the concept of a soulmate? Well, I do because I'm married to what I consider to be mine, but I look, I do think that it's really important who you choose to marry. And um, in this show, you know, one of the things that we're also sort of exploring is that, you know, Billy had this incredible love affair with Brad, who, as I said, like he had this emotional baggage that really was getting in his way. And, um, 
And then she met Cooper, who seemed like a great sort of soothing balm to all of that. But he's the kind of guy for whom she didn't necessarily think that she would be acceptable. And this is a thing that women are taught, you know, by society is that we have to make ourselves marriage worthy, you know, and we have to sort of lower our number, the number of guys we've had sex with and sort of deny our appetites and, and the sexual past that we may have had. And that is what you know, Billy does. And she is not honest with him about who she is and what she wants. And it seems like a good idea at the time. It seems like the right decision. But then you find yourself eight years later and you are not living on all of your (laughs) dynamics. You are not expressing yourself fully. And so obviously communication is a huge, huge thing, but also picking someone with whom you feel you can be all parts of yourself and and not being ashamed of all parts of yourself and feeling that all parts of yourself are worthy of being expressed and tended to by your partner. I never thought that was going to happen for me. I mean, I met my husband when I was 37 and I really had gotten to the point where I thought it's just not going to happen for me and I'm not going to have kids and that's okay because my career's going well and my nephew will be the one who's on my deathbed <laughs> with me and that's okay. And so I bought a condo and I decorated it as girly as I wanted it to be and sparkly and pink and all of those things. And then of course, you know, within a year I met my husband, but I feel incredibly fortunate that I can be myself with him. And, and in fact, you know, we wrote our own vows for our wedding and it's something that he said to me, which it was remarkable that he knew that that was important for him to give to me, that he was like, you can be your full self for you. And I want you to be you. And, and I think that uh, if you can find someone like that, I mean, you know, uh, sex in the city is one of my favorite TV shows ever. So, you know, in the final lines of that, as she said, Michael Patrick King, I think wrote it, said, if you can find someone who loves the you, you love, then that's just fabulous. So that's what we should all be looking to find. (laughs) That's beautiful. So Hollywood's a tough town and the business you've been in is a challenging one. (laughs) I mean, you seem to make it look pretty easy. What do you think is your secret to success and surviving and and sort of staying with the healthy attitude that you have? It certainly hasn't been easy. And I like to be honest about that so that people don't feel depressed or down when it's hard for them, you know, and think that something's wrong with them, that it's not going well. It's a killer. This business is a killer. The number of no's that you hear, the amount of criticism you have to hear about something that comes from your soul <laughs> and you put yourself out there and, and what you have to hear. I mean, you have to be tough and you got to make sure you have good people around you who are supporting you. But the highs are really high, you know, and it is really great. And I can't think of anything more fun in the world than the job of being a television writer because you get to create and tell stories and that makes it worth it. But It takes an unbelievable amount of persistence and rising above and keeping your eye on the prize. And that is everything. I mean, even my kids, you know, in school, it's like they're the new sort of mantra in education is they want to teach kids grit. That's the thing. And I'm like, that's a good thing to teach. If you can teach that, that's great because persistence is what you have to hang on to. And, you know, like I said, I didn't know that Unreal would have the effect that it had. And I didn't even really know that this would. Like I said, I knew that sex life came from a very personal place in me 
but did I know that other people would feel seen or, you know, feel excited by even the sort of nostalgia of the past and, you know, how it was exciting to me to write about those times? I did not. So you just have to keep putting yourself out there and hoping and trusting that if it is coming from your heart, that it will connect with other people too, you know, and it might not. And then you got to just keep going again. <laughs> keep swinging. Yeah. Swing big, go big or go home. That's what I say too. It's like, if you're going just what you think people want or, or what's going to be safe, then there's no point. It's like, we're here as writers to observe the world, to communicate about it. And everybody I believe has something important and very personal to say, and they should be saying it as loudly as they possibly can. Yeah. Bravo. Well, congratulations. Thanks a lot for the chat today. Thank you so much. I look forward to season two. Thank you. Fingers crossed. <laughs> See you, Stacey. Okay, bye. You've been listening to my conversation with Stacey Rookeiser. Plenty to ponder and plenty of takeouts for me from that chat. I admire anyone who throws their hat in the ring, particularly when they bear their soul for a global audience to watch and judge. You can watch Stacey's latest hit series, Sex Life, on Netflix globally or head to imdb.com for more info about her work. If you like what you've heard, please give us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and share the blank canvas with a friend. Until next week, live large. Blank Canvas is produced by Lee Rogers and me, Rin MacDonald, with audio support by Jason Murphy at Gas Inc. and music by Rodrigo Bustos. This has been a Milovich production. <laughs>